This is Diver, podcast about diversity, equity, and inclusion in special education research. I'm your host, Federico Weitler, associate professor at the University of Illinois at Chicago and board member of the Division of Research of the Council for Exceptional Children. Welcome, welcome, welcome to our sixth episode of Dive In, a podcast about diversity, equity, and inclusion in special education research, a podcast sponsored by the Division of Research of the Council for Exceptional Children. Let me start today our episode saying that if you haven't, uh, if you're not part of the Division of Research of the Council for Exceptional Children, what are you waiting for? Join us. We have a great and unique perks for our members and great resources and a great network of professionals that uh, will definitely help you in, in your career. So uh, today we have such a great program. Let me say that. Um, nobody could doubt, nobody could uh, put a doubt in that parents, particularly parents of students of color, have a wealth of resources about the student and of course, they're, they're experts on their own experiences with schooling. They have key information that is essential and vital to build any educational plan, to build any learning design for their students, and to understand these students and families. So today, in our program, we have an interview with the author of Mothering Label Children, Bilingualism and Disability, in the lives of Latinx mothers. And her name is Maria Choi Peña. Uh, we're very excited to be talking today with her. I hope you enjoy the interview and I see you on the other side. Welcome, Maria. Thank you so much for being in our show and uh, for visiting us and sharing your wisdom with us today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. Yeah, we're, we're very excited to have you here and learn from your work. Um, I was reading your uh, your latest book, um, and one of the, the, the most powerful things of, of your new book is that you center mother narratives within, within the book and, of course, within your research. Um, what do you think or, or how we can argue or convince someone that we're gaining something from it? How, what do we gain from centering mother narratives, particularly thinking about research from a research perspective? Yeah, um, you know, I think the first thing to know is that I'm an interdisciplinary scholar, right? So for me, I'm really looking at what are the lived experiences of children with disabilities, right, and their families, and what are the elements that are impacting those things? So when we look at kids just in school, most of the time we're focusing on the factors and elements that are at school, right? Mm -hmm. Or we're thinking about the factors of elements that are at home that impact school. Mm -hmm. But we don't necessarily think about the things that we do in school that impact the home, mm -hmm. right? And, this, and the lack of synergy that may exist there. So for me, mothers really function as stewards, right, of mm -hmm. these worlds. So they really bring together all of the elements. They carry with them not just what's happening, what's happening educationally, but they carry with them what's happening socially, what's happening politically, what's happening economically. So you get this insight, not just into a child's caretaker, but really into a child's environment. 
So for me, mothers really highlight the interconnectedness of children's lives outside of school um, in a way that allows us to fully see kids um, so that we can really care for them holistically. Mm, so they are like a, like a very unique advantage point, right, from a researcher's perspective. I would say that they are the foremost expert on that child. Right. And if we are interested in learning about children, then we need to partner with the experts on children, which are the people who have been following them from birth. Right. And those tend to be their mothers. And I want to be really careful here. I'm using the term mothers, but I don't mean just women. Right. Mm -hmm. Mother, mothers and mothering for me is not tied to gender. It's really about a caretaking function, but it's important to name it as mothering rather than caretaking. Because mm -hmm. politically, that work is really devalued, right? We look at it as like, it's a natural and organic work, but it's really, it's hard work. It's it's mm -hmm. intense work. It's important work. Um, and so that's why I center mothers and mothering rather than just caretaking in general, but it's not restricted just to women. So I, I like really want to be clear about that, that everyone is engaging in this work. And so it happens to be that my data right has featured women self-identified women but i mm -hmm. i've never asked people you know i've never asked mothers who participated in my studies their gender representation so i want to be careful to not box it in um in any conversation right like i don't want to just tie that to gender it's more about the work of tending to this child from birth right mm tending to this child day to day, being concerned of being concerned and aware of what they eat, when they sleep, where they sleep, how they're sleeping, who they're spending time with, you know, what what emotional state they're in every day. That's that's a lot of data. Mm. Right? That's a lot of longitudinal data that yeah. we say that we value, right? And yet we don't center these voices. We tend to push them to the side and treat them as if they are really just there to help us as teachers and educators in our work when really we're there to help them, right, mm. in their work. That's that's a great point, the last one you made. Uh, let me follow up with this because this 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 uh, notion of mothering, it's, it's very interesting. I think our audience would, would like to hear more about. You say in your book, that mothering label children, that mother narratives are a political and intentional act. Can you help our listeners to understand that? Yeah. Um, so I want to ground this particularly in the context of the study that I was doing and the women that I uh, worked with for this book. Um, so when I was talking to this one, these women, it was 2016, right? Um, so the Trump um that was, who was, oh my God, who was Trump running against then? That feels so far and foreign now. But it was the year that Trump won the election. Oh, Clinton, right? It was Clinton. the Trump-Clinton yeah. election. Um, <clears throat> you know, I had been recruiting for, for participants for weeks before the election and was not getting any bites. Um, and the morning after the election, I dragged myself out of bed, right? Very depressed. And... It's just like, I have to go recruit because that's that's what I'm doing. I'm a citizen and I don't have any fears. So I got to go see what's happening in these communities. And I got to go talk to people. That day, I got 40 people to sign up. Wow. Right? 
And I think, and I was in the same space the day before and no one signed up, right? I think there was a shift. There was a moment of like, they're coming for us and we need to tell our story, Mm. right? So they're, so mothers also, when I say that they have a political pulse, right? They understand what is happening around them, right? They know what are going to be the consequences of political decisions. These women were living you know, by the time I was interviewing them and towards the end of the study in a social and communal environment that was really under heavy ice pressure and surveillance, Mm. right? So they were taking risk in talking to me, right? They didn't know me. They trusted that I belonged to the community and I was doing right by them because they had heard from someone else, right, that I had been known and that I had been teaching there and that I was active in the community. But I had women who dropped from studies because their husbands told them that they didn't want them talking to me, right? Mm -hmm. So that's what I mean in terms of political. When women show up, women particularly who lack agency, right, um, because they lack status, because of their socioeconomic position, because of their linguistic backgrounds, right? When they come to talk to us, when they show up at schools, that's at a risk to them, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we have to remember that this is a time when schools were being used as grounds to pick up people for deportation, yeah. right? Where so like them going to these spaces was really risky and we need to see it as that, right? And so that's what I mean in terms of them being politically important and their voices being politically important. It's that they are making critically conscious choices in coming to talk to us and telling mm. us about their concerns and telling us about their needs, right? And so we need to treat that with the care that it is delivered with. Absolutely. And I think not just their narratives and voice, right? I think their mere presence, their mere presence of them stepping and occupying a space in school or showing up in schools or or, in, or whatever, or in other environments you may have interviewed them, that's in itself, I think, beyond their narrative, a, a political stance, right? I'm here. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'll use my own mother as an example. My mom had a fifth grade level education, right? That's what she had access to in our home country, right? In Dominican Republic. And yet she showed up to every school event that I would attend to, even though she couldn't speak English, even though she didn't necessarily have the literacy skills to engage with that work, but she knew that being there mattered, right? And and so recognizing presence is really important because it's what she could give. Mm. And it and it was so much. Mm. Right. And sometimes we just see mothers, and you know, the mothers in my study really highlighted this as well, particularly during things like IEP meetings, right? They would show up to these meetings, they would be quiet. People would assume that their silence was indifference, right? But they were doing what they could do. Right. And what they perceived themselves to be doing was I'm being present. I'm absorbing this information. I am learning and I'm staying out of the way mm. because I don't know how to navigate this. Right. But we don't see that necessarily as educators. We haven't been conditioned to see it that way because we've been conditioned to expect one kind of parental participation. Right. Which is white middle class squeaky wheel kind of participation. Right. Um, or when we have engagement or participation in a black or brown body, but it's not 
as refined or as polite or, you know, quote unquote polite or as kind, then those parents get positioned as aggressive, right? Or difficult. So yes, presence is so important and how we welcome that presence and how we understand that presence is also really critical in seeing mothers, mothers, narratives, mothers, choices, mothers, actions as intentional and political. Hmm. That's, that's very, very important what you're saying. Um, you know, moving, moving within the, this, the same topic or same line of uh, uh, questions, one of the main themes of your book, and, and that's how I read it. So you can correct me if I'm wrong, is that this hegemonic or, or very dominant role of English in shaping mother's experience in school, right? Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So. We have to, you know, we have to accept that our schools are constructed to be monolingual spaces. They are constructed to be English only and English first spaces, right? So even where we have multicultural, multilingual presence, it's still English first and English mostly. Mm -hmm. um, and so when mothers enter spaces like that, um, and they find or seek someone that they think is linguistically compatible with them, but then they don't find that compatibility, that often feels like a rejection, right? Um, and like a push out. So mm -hmm. in my in my study, for example, I had a lot of mothers who would say, and I would go to this Latino or Hispanic teacher and I would start talking to them in Spanish. And I know that they speak Spanish, but they would only talk to me in English. Oh, wow. Right. So that that's one way, one very like interpersonal way in which it's felt right but that when you look outward it's the same when we think about all school communication all signage at schools you know the first means the first sounds that you hear when you mm. call a school everything is in english regardless of the neighborhood or population that's being supported um and that's because of the way that policies are structured right because we need to be responsible to stakeholders that are not just parents and community members um, as school leaders. Um, and so that's one of the ways in which it really insidious, insidiously shapes experiences because before they can even think to ask for language services, they're communicated and they're receiving messages that tell them that it's all about English and it should be about English. And if they're not interested in their kid attaining English, then they're a hindrance to their children's learning, mm. right? And so then you have moms who enter these systems and they're being told that something's wrong, right? Quote unquote, wrong with their kid. And they need to get them services as fast as possible, but they're only available in English. And if you want them multilingually, you're going to have to wait. Well, what you hear is you're going to delay your child's development and progress. Mm. You're going to delay fixing your child right no mother is going to want yeah. to get in her child's way right so then yeah. she starts giving up the things that are necessary in order for her to actually be present and a part of her child's education primarily that linguistic bridge hmm. and, and i think i mean one of the things you're saying to i think is that it this context this english dominant context it also tells you indirectly, you don't belong here. Correct. And then it communicates to the kids, your parents don't belong here. Mm. Right. And if they wanted to be here, 
then they would learn English. And if they don't learn English, then they're failures, right? So it becomes just these ways that we're communicating messages unintentionally, right, I would hope, um, that really devalue um, these mothers and these parents at large, right? These caretakers at large, because it's the grandparents, it's the nannies, it's it's the network of people who are caring for these kids um, who are outside of the bounds of English, right? Or navigating the world in a perfect English. Because the other thing that you see is you see these women, you know, collecting phrases and, you know, terms to be able to navigate school and community spaces and still be told like, oh, I don't understand you or, Mm -hmm. oh, your English isn't very good. Right. So then attempts also get rejected. Um, Yeah. So there's just a lot of this coding that happens that communicates to people like you're just not valuable to us if you don't speak English and our English in in this way. Absolutely. And I I thought what was some of it was very interesting that you mentioned in the book is not just how the school uh, uh, operates in this context, but also that this English context shapes the children's perception about their mother, right? Yeah. Yeah. So then, you know, what happens is the kids start associating English with intelligence, mm. English with success, English with upward mobility, English with Americanness, right? Mm. And all of these things that their mothers and families are telling them they should strive for without them knowing that they're also telling them to strive for these that telling them to strive for these things means also telling them to give up these other cultural parts of themselves and these other connective parts of themselves and the kids do it willingly because you know that's the messaging you get in school, right? Don't you, you want to learn, you want to get ahead, you want to have a good job, you want to have a career, you want to be independent, right? There's such a big focus on independence in schools. Um, and so kids then start thinking about their families in relation to those ideals. And if their mothers don't meet those ideals, then they start really infantilizing them. Um, you know, in my book, I feature one child, Dan, who at fifth grade says, I'm more, I'm, smarter than everyone in my family because I speak better English. Mm. That was it, right? Wow. Like his parents were working and caretaking and you know paying rent and making all these things possible and supporting him and his learning, but he couldn't see that because they didn't speak English. So he didn't see any of that labor. Mm. Fascinating. You know, Maria, I would also love to get into, you know, like the kitchen of your research, right? We want to see a little bit of the dirty dishes and all that background and behind the scenes things uh, on how you you design the research. Because uh, one of the purpose of this podcast is to 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 help others trying to do this work to to create re- design research that that it's attentive to to issues of equity and diversity and inclusion. So tell us a little bit of how you approach research design so these mothers or narratives are are centering the findings and tell us a little bit about that yeah so you know i think it's important to know a few things one i'm an ethnographer by training right in terms of the technical methodological things that we think about um but really at the core of my work is Um, descriptive inquiry, which was something that I did as a classroom teacher before I even went to grad school. It was part of my master's training. Mm -hmm. And, you know, my background and my origin in education is in early childhood um, education. And 
descriptive inquiry was a really central part of that work and of early elementary um, grade work because it's really focused on centering the child, on strength-based perspectives, right? Mm. On describing what is there, on seeing what is there, on asking questions about how can I help this person become the fullest version of themselves? Not as defined by me, but as defined by them, right? How can I help this person grow and connect and do all these things? Um, and I love that work, right? And a lot of that work is centered around um, observations, around descriptions of children, narrative descriptions of children, of their the way that they move, the way that they take up space, how they relate to other people, what their interests are, the way that they think. Um and then this other element called recollections, which is where the adults and teachers who care for this child come together through storytelling, right? And try to, and it's mm. usually storytelling centered on their childhood and what it was like for them to be a child. I have loved that work. I have found so much expansion for myself as a teacher, as a researcher, as a scholar through that work. And really what I've been doing, you know, through my studies is finding ways to adapt those methods of looking at children to look at adults. Mm -hmm. um, because one of the things that I've been finding and thinking about is how often we think about adults as just who they are now without thinking of who they were, right? And yeah. that within them is still that child, is a child, right? Um, mm -hmm. Sandra Cisneros short story 11 is one of the most powerful pieces of, you know, literature that I like gravitate to. And she talks about, you know, being a person as like these layers of an onion and how all those parts of you are still inside of you. And so for me, I really want to approach adults with that same kind of sensitivity and grace. Mm -hmm. And so I use descriptive inquiry in that same way. So I conducted home observations. I would just sit and watch these women, um, these mothers play with their children. I would watch them at the park. I would go with them to the market. I would just follow them. And I wasn't analyzing what they were doing. I was literally just writing down every single thing mm. that they were doing as it was being done, right? Picked up this, held this hand, did this, asked this question. Um, and that was one way that I really got to look at how do they interact? How do they care for their kids? How do they show their children love? Not how do I see love here, right? How do they show their children love? So that was really helpful. Then the recollections I was able to use with the mothers to ask them questions, to ask them to share stories with me about their motherhood experience, about what it was like for them to be children, for them to explore future goals that they had for themselves. So it was really about me giving over as much space as possible to my participants to show me who they were and me sitting back and opening myself up to see who they were rather than who I wanted them to be, who society wanted them to be, who society was constructing them to be. Um, that was really the nitty gritty of this work, right? And just listening to those, to my data, like I listened to my data so many times. I would listen to those interviews over and over again um, until I, like I could just, 
I can pull for you from my mind different quotes and different pieces and different stories. And I, I know them, right. And I've maintained relationships with them. And so I think that that's, what's at the core of this, that I was really interested in centering them as whole beings. And so it allowed me to just continue developing my design in real time. Sometimes like I was adding interviews like, oh no, we have to do a recollection of what was life in Mexico like, because so many of them are bringing this up in their other stories, Mm. right? So it was really about turning over control to letting them tell me what they wanted to tell me. There was one woman who, you know, it came to light that her husband was having an affair, right? Mm. And how that was impacting her relationship with her children. That wouldn't have been possible if I had just stuck to my questions or the things that I wanted to know or learn about, right? But because I was really centered on this descriptive stance and this observant stance, um, she was able to create that space for herself. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. I mean, uh... Uh, so many questions to to follow up this this particular approach to to understand parents' experiences and students' experiences. Go yeah, go ahead. I've written. Um, I have an article called "Descriptive Inquiry at the Margins," um, which is published in Schools, which I think is by University of Chicago um, Press. And there, I describe some of the ways that I've taken up descriptive inquiry, um, more specifically in my method in my methodological work. If people want to explore that. Thank you, thank you. That definitely is something that people should be referring to 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 further their understanding of of your approach. Um, what are you working on now? Now, um, I've you know it's been really interesting. My work with mothers um, really started to surface some tensions um, within the Latinx community um, in how race was being experienced, how disability was being experienced. So um, also at the push of, you know, uh, the late and great John Henner, who was really pushing me to center the children, right, and Mm. their lived experiences. Um, I am working now on a new project where um, it's called B is for uh, bilingual. and it's this idea around how children are classified in schools, particularly Latinx kids, and whether those classifications end up matching their identity. Um, and so I'm really interested in self-identified Black Latinos and mm. figuring out how self-contained special education or English language learner spaces helped contribute to shaping their racial identity um, and their sense of belonging within the Latino community and beyond. Wow, super, yeah, super interesting. When you make categorizing, you mean just special education, or or could be categorized as ELL, or just like more uh, soft or informal labels like slow learner or labels like that. So I'm looking at three things. Um, So one is actually four. So one is formal. identity categorization. So if they're categorized as Latino, right, versus so they're being categorized ethnically, but not racially, right? So what does that do in terms of our understanding for racial representation and disproportionality in education? The second is I'm looking at kids who are categorized as English language learners, right? And then what kind of programs they end up in? Um, do you end up in an, in an ESL program as opposed to a bilingual program? Um, based on your experiences and your socio 
cultural positioning, um, and then special education. Do you have a formal IEP? Do you, do you have a 504? Mm. Did you only get resource or pullout services, right? What are the different ways that kids are experiencing these spaces? And how do these different spaces then shape how they relate to these markers and these identities, right? So how does if you were in an, you know, if you were in an inclusive program for all of your life, does that make you more inclined to have a sense of disability pride, right? Mm. As opposed to if you were in a self-contained program where you're like, wait, I'm really focused on maybe disability justice or, you know, on what it means to be a, a disabled person and experience oppression. So I'm really interested in how those different spaces in, in relation to those classifications that are applied to these kids how they are either taken up or rejected. Wow. And do you think that that the whatever you're going to find, what do you think the implications for classroom practice will be? I think more than classroom practice, first, the implications are going to be for policy um, yeah. and in terms of how we collect data around these populations and these students. I think in terms of classroom practice, it's really gonna impact how we determine student placement and program mm. placement. Um, you know, right now we really center program availability or teacher expertise when mm -hmm. determining what Definitely. programs should be selected for kids. And we really need to start shifting that to what do kids actually need? Um, and not just now, but in the long term, what do they want for themselves and what do what communities do they want to belong to so that we're considering that in terms of placement as well? Great, great. So we look forward to seeing those findings and and see how they can can improve uh, services that provide to children. So I have the two last questions are two questions that I always ask my uh, interviewees. Uh, the first one uh, is uh, if you can give, three pieces of advice to special education researchers who wants to center equity and justice in their research. What would you say? What would you, uh, what, what would be the, those three pieces? Um, oh, three pieces, this is really good. Even though I've tried to think about them before. Um, so I think the first one is, I think I really want teachers to trust in their capacity to be partners and collaborators with parents. Mm. Um, I, and, and in their capacity to build partnerships, I really want teachers to trust in that and that they can do that and that they can do it well and that it will benefit their practice and that it will benefit their students. Um, I think the second thing is for teachers to think about centering their children holistically, right? Not just as students in schools, but who are they outside of school and what do they need? What can mm -hmm. we provide for them in order to ensure that they're successful in those other spaces and relationships as well? Um, and I think the last thing is teachers really need to think about the self um, and about others with grace. Um, and the lens towards expansion rather than shrinkage. I want to recognize that right now teachers are in a really tough spot. Um, yeah. They are heavily underappreciated, heavily criticized. Um, you know, people don't trust them. People say or perceive that they don't trust them, but I want teachers to know that we trust them, right? There's a minority of voices that are being really noisy, but for the most part, you know, we trust them, we trust their expertise, and, and I want them to feel like 
they are doing this work and they're doing this work well and that there is space for them to grow because we are all growing and that you know, that's my one fear about what's happening right now with so many attacks on education is that it forces people to feel like they have to present as perfect, right? Mm. And I'm really interested in presenting myself as in development, you know, like even the way that I just shared my study with you, that may change, right? That might evolve yeah. because that's just the nature of the work. And I'm allowing myself the space and the grace to say, that's going to change. And I, I'm going to allow that to change because that's what the work needs. And I really want teachers to reconnect with that place for themselves, um, because I think that that's where the future is. That's where us creating spaces that really center all kids, right? Not just kids with disabilities, but transgender students, um, marginalized students, you know, low income students, students who are just being attacked in so many ways right now is by us remembering to center our own humanity. Mm. I think it's very interesting what you say because I think you mentioned three areas that we don't we have very limited research. You know, most of our research in special education for that concerns teachers about how we can make teachers more efficient, how teachers can follow interventions with more fidelity, how to improve uh, special education practices, how teachers can improve their special education uh, teaching. But you mentioned three areas that we know very little and and and. I know very little people do work on that, which is, uh, and I probably can count it with, with less than one hand, uh, which are uh, the idea that how we build, how we, how we support teachers to be better allies and partners of parents, right? And how the, can, we can build that self-confidence and, and their capacity to, to, to work with the parents. And the last one that I, that I thought was very interesting that you mentioned is how we support special education teachers to do that self-work, right? That self-work that needs to be done uh, on, on stereotypes, on prejudice, on, 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 on the ideas that we have about disabilities and other minoritized populations that, that really shapes how teachers go about practice. So I hope, I hope listeners to take up on that as well. All right, my last question is, in terms of racial, gender, uh, class equity, what would you like to see in special education research in the next three to five years? I would really like um, special education research to problematize um, IDA's categories, disability categories. Um, I really would like to see us understand, you know, we talk about it in terms of disproportionality so often, but like, now what, right? So yes, we know that these categories aren't functioning in the ways that they should be. So what systems, what things do we need to start putting in place to start actually resulting in change? Um, so I would love to see some of that. Um, and I would really like to start seeing more centering of disability pride and disability justice focused on Black and brown people. Hmm. And well, thank seeing that work. Yeah. Sorry I interrupted you. Uh, uh, were you were you finishing a thought? No, uh, that was it. You had one question that you haven't asked me, but I really, I think it's a good one. And so I'm going to name it, which was a question about books. Were you going to get there or did oh, I? Oh, yes, yes. So yeah, that was part of the, the, the prior question and uh, uh, you're completely right. So you, you know, you should be doing the interview. Why, why am I even here? You know better the questions than I do. Uh, no, it's month, just because I month, thought about it. Next episode, I invite you over. Uh, awesome. 
um, recommend me two or three pieces of reading that you think are seminal pieces that people who wants to do work researching diversity, equity, inclusion, special education should be reading. Okay, so the first is two books. I'm sorry, they're going to come to one. Uh, one, uh, so Essential Labor and Revolutionary Mothering. Um, mm. Those books really center on looking at mothering as, you know, a political and revolutionary act. Um, I think those are really great. Um, Descriptive Inquiry and in Teacher Practice, um, Cultivating Practical Wisdom to Create Democratic Schools by Kara Furman and Cecilia Tra. Um I really wanted to name something for teacher educators and teachers who are listening to this as to like, mm. how do we take up this work in our classroom, right? If we're not researchers, like how do we do this ourselves? Yeah. And the final one is Troublemakers by Carla Shalaby, because again, I really want to go back to how can we be kinder towards adults and we reconnect with who they were mm. as children. Thank you so much. And let me add, also read your book, Mothering Labeled yes. Children, of course. Yes, you should read my book, Mothering Labeled Children. Um, yeah, I think I think it's helpful. I also just want to name that if you know any families or parents who are Spanish literate, the book is available in Spanish totally for free um, on my website. Um, anyone can download it. And it's really made so that parents can have access to these resources and this information um, for themselves. So please well, share that. It's been a pleasure to talk to you, Maria. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much, Federico. This has been lovely. Thank you for listening to our episode. I hope you learned as much from the interview as I did. This episode was produced by me, Federico Vaitoller, Tasia Gonzalez, and Haya Abdelatif. Please, if you like this the podcast, subscribe and please tell your friends about it. See you next time.